Thank you, Dustin and worship team, for leading us so well in worship and for using your gifts for God's glory. We, will, we really do appreciate it, brothers. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear a good report about last Sunday. As so many of you have come up to me and just uh, mentioned just how blessed you were, and so I'm encouraged by that. I will give a brief report on my whereabouts last Sunday. No, I did not not come because Stephen was preaching. I, I, whenever pre Stephen is preaching anywhere, I love to be there. He's one of my favorite preachers. Uh, I was up in Sacramento preaching at a Ukrainian Baptist church. Let me just tell you the story very briefly. This is a church pastored, pastored by a, a friend of mine um, named Pastor Vadim Dashkovitz. We call him Pastor Dash. And he's been pastoring at this church for some time. Um, during the war in Ukraine, the church has blown up. They've helped hundreds of Ukrainian refugees come into the United States. Many of them have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Their congregation now has five services every Sunday. And when I say it's packed, I mean for some of the services, I preached four of the five. Um, through a translator. One of them's in English, the others uh, were translated. But they have to, have to set up, imagine we have to set up chairs in the foyer and in the hallway and down the hallway, and even then there are people that can't find a seat. So, you know, the Bible says that God uses evil for good. And God has used the war in Ukraine for the good of bringing many Ukrainians to Christ. Now, that's not the best part. One of the coolest things is that one of the five services is a Russian congregation. Because during this war, they have started a church for Russians. So a Ukrainian church gives space and has started a church for Russians. Now, if that's not a picture of the unity of the gospel, I don't know what is. But that's an encouraging thing to us, that God is, when you turn on the news and you see all of the bad, just know that behind it, God is using whatever evil, whatever bad, whatever suffering, God is using that to advance his kingdom. And I was privileged to get to see it firsthand. So thank you for giving me the privilege of being there last Sunday. Well, today we begin a new four-week sermon series. You guys know I like to preach through a book of the Bible. Well, we have a timeline now that we have a scheduled business meeting on February 18th. Stephen, Lord willing, everything goes well. We'll start in the beginning of March. And so what I've done is I'm starting a four-week sermon series, which, Lord willing, with the installation of a new pastor, would conclude my time at Calvary. The sermon series is titled Born Again. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. And what I want to do over the next several weeks when I'm here is to preach a sermon series where we take a close look at this conversation between Jesus and a man called Nicodemus. And as you turn there, let me explain my goals for this series. First, as I say, I want us to think seriously about the words of Jesus and his teaching about salvation, because we should listen carefully to what Jesus says about salvation. Second, I want us to ask ourselves personally, I want you to ask yourself, have I been born 
again? And third, if the answer is yes, I want you in the course of this sermon series to develop a greater appreciation for what God has done for you, what it means to be born again, and for you to have a greater desire for other people to experience a saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So John chapter 3, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 8. Hopefully you got a bulletin. The title of the sermon is Getting There. So let me read for us and then I'll pray. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This, came, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give me grace, a clear mind, a steady voice. Give ears to hear, prepare hearts to receive. Lord, for anyone who's not born again, I pray that they would leave here this morning with a new, saving relationship with you. And for those brothers and sisters that are born again, I pray that they would leave marveling at your grace, astounded at your mercy, ready to live for you more fully and more joyfully. God, we pray for our missionaries this morning as they spread the good news of salvation around the world. Strengthen them. Bear fruit. Lord, we pray for the church plants, the new churches that we're starting all over the world. I pray, God, that you would energize those leaders. And I pray, Father, that you would bring people to hear the word preached and that it would be preached and that Christ would be exalted. Lord, we commit this time to you. Meet with us in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't been to the Nixon Library in your Belinda, you really should go. I love presidential libraries, and the Nixon is very special because it's built on the farm that his dad bought for his family. The farm in which they picked citrus and raised four of their five children right there on the farm. When you go to the Nixon Library, it's really more of a museum, you can tour the house he was born in. They have the bed he was born in. You can see the table he ate at as a little boy. And then when you leave the house, you see the, the helicopter he left office in. You know, the, that helicopter. <laughs> and then next to that is the place where he's buried next to his wife, Pat. The Nixon Museum is, of course, also famous because it covers his presidency. And when you think of the Nixon presidency, one word probably comes to mind. Watergate. The burglary that led to a scandal 
which ultimately led to his resignation. And in the section of the museum on Watergate, you see the pictures of the so-called Watergate 7, the men who either broke into the DNC headquarters at Watergate and the men who knew about it and covered it up. One of those men, special counsel to the president, an attorney by the name of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was convicted for his part in Watergate, and he went to prison for, I believe, 17 months in Alabama. But before he went to prison, someone gave him a copy of a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And Chuck Colson read Mere Christianity, and he became a Christian. And he went to prison, and when he left prison, he started a ministry to get the gospel to prisoners called Prison Fellowship. Years later, Chuck Colson would write a memoir, a biography of sorts, about his spiritual journey titled Born Again. And in the introduction to Born Again, Chuck Colson says this. Listen carefully to his words of reflection, given his amazing story. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, whether they stand at the heights of political power or the depths of a prison confinement. I have been in both spots. And no matter where a person is, God will meet him or her there with an invitation to forgiveness and new life. And as Christians, we say amen to that. Whether you find yourself high or low this morning, God invites sinners to forgiveness. God invites sinners into a new life. God has an invitation to you to be forgiven, to be born again. Well, our story today from God's Word centers on a nighttime conversation between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus. You know who Jesus is, but who's Nicodemus? Well, in verse 1, it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And so Nicodemus is both a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a religious leader, and he's a political ruler. He's a man of power. He's a man of means. He's a man of influence. If I can borrow from Chuck Colson, he's a man at the height of political power. And so we're told that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. It says in verse 2. Now there's a lot of commentary written about the reason why Nicodemus came at night. We don't know exactly why, convenience maybe, or maybe embarrassment. But as a man of power, a ruler, he recognizes that there's something special about Jesus. He knows that Jesus is unique, different. We see in verse 2, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. To Nicodemus's credit, he acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher from God and that God is with him, as evidenced by the signs, the miracles 
that Jesus was performing. This is the right conclusion when you read the Gospels and you read about what Jesus did. It's reasonable to conclude that Jesus cannot be a mere man because no mere man can control the weather. No mere man can raise the dead. No mere man can change water to wine. No mere man can forgive sins. And so Nicodemus sees this, and he rightly concludes, Jesus, you are from God. Now you would perhaps expect that Jesus would respond to this like you or I might respond, by saying something like, thank you or nice of you to notice, or you get it. You really are a smart guy. But Jesus responds differently. Immediately, it says that Jesus responds by saying in verse 3, he answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I think what's going on here is that Jesus knows the real reason Nicodemus is there. Jesus is not buttered up by Nicodemus's compliment. Jesus knows the question, even though Nic- Jesus knows the question, even though Nicodemus hasn't asked the question. Jesus sees past the pretense, past the power, past the earthly rule, to the heart of a man. And the heart of the man is to know How can I see the kingdom of God? Which is why Jesus responds to his compliment by telling him how he can see the kingdom of God. Jesus knows the real Nicodemus just as he knows the real you. Jesus knows the questions of your heart before you ever communicate them, before you're even aware of them, And for Nicodemus, the question that he brought there in the night was the question we've all asked. How can I be saved? And so my sermon this morning is divided into three parts. The destination, the problem, and the solution. So first, the destination. Nicodemus wants directions. When you're lost, at some point you have to own up to the fact that you're lost and you have to get directions. Now for Nicodemus, he wants directions to see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God refers to the presence of God, the place of God's rule and reign, a place of righteousness and blessing, a place without curse, a place without sin, a place without suffering. Sounds like the kind of place you'd like to be, and I'd like to be. But how do we get there? You remember that the Bible starts with a garden of Eden, a garden called Eden. And the garden of Eden was a place of paradise, a place where humans enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God. No sin, no shame, no guilt. We can hardly imagine what that would be like. A place filled with peace and goodness and holiness. But then Adam and Eve sinned and were expelled from the garden and sin brought curse and broken fellowship and separation from God. So Nicodemus wants to know how he can be right with God, how he can one day find his way back into the garden, back into paradise, back into the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus is smart. He looks around the world and he sees hurt and brokenness and lies and confusion. And he's smart enough to know this isn't paradise. And we can't make it paradise. But there is a paradise. How do I get there? He wants directions. He wants to see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus doesn't mean see it. He means go there. I was thinking about Disneyland. You know, you drive down Catella, and you can see Disneyland through the fence. You know that? You can see the Matterhorn. Uh, Let me think about it. Nowadays, you can see the, the Guardians of the Galaxy Tower. You can see things. But if your kids were to say to you, Dad, I want to see Disneyland, it wouldn't suffice to drive them down Catella and say, see, there it is. What they mean is, Dad, I want to go in. And Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, I want to go in. I want to go into the kingdom. I want to enter paradise. I want to live in the presence of God. I want to experience that unbroken fellowship for myself. Nicodemus wants into the kingdom. He wants to go in. He wants to experience it for himself forever. And that's the heart of every person who comes to Christ. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Jesus, for the second time in this conversation, responds in a way that Nicodemus is certainly not expecting. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He can't go in. Jesus says, if you want to go in, you must be born again. Look in verse 4. Nicodemus responds by saying, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I think it's easy to sort of read Nicodemus here the wrong way and think, Nicodemus doesn't get it. But maybe he does. In saying you must be born again, Jesus is saying you can't enter the kingdom, Nicodemus, because you are a sinner, because you have fallen short of God's glory. Because you, like Adam and Eve, have eaten the fruit and rebelled against God. You, Jesus says, must become a new you. So when Nicodemus says, I'm old, I imagine what he means is something like this. What am I supposed to start over again? What am I supposed to start a new life and do it right this time? I think he's saying... I've already messed up. I think Nicodemus knows that he's sinned. I think Nicodemus knows that he needs directions. I think Nicodemus knows that he doesn't have it figured out. And so he's saying, I've lived my life. I'm an old man and I've blown it. I've sinned. And I know I don't get a do over. It may be that Nicodemus is coming by night because he doesn't want others to see him. That's reasonable. As a ruler, you wouldn't expect him to be asking directions. Have you ever been driving somewhere you're supposed to know? And you say, I got this. And maybe your spouse is saying, honey, do you need direction? No, I've got this. Others would expect Nicodemus to got this. 
But Nicodemus comes admitting, I don't got this. I need directions. How do I get to see the kingdom? Jesus says, you can't. You must become a new you. And Nicodemus says, but I'm an old man. So Nicodemus, I think, is saying, well, I guess I'm out. Three strikes against me, sinners like me, who've made a mess of it, can't get into heaven. And you might be tempted to think to yourself, well, maybe I'm a better person than Nicodemus. But you have to understand that this character, Nicodemus, is introduced to us by John as a best-case scenario of what a human being can be. You know, we all do this. We all compare ourselves to someone bad, and then we sort of provide some balm to our conscience that, well, I'm not good, but I'm not as bad as that person. You might think, well, I'm better than Putin, or I'm better than Bernie Madoff, or you pick some extreme character, and then you think, well, I'm good by comparison. But at the end of chapter 2, there is this section that we have to read quickly. In chapter 2, you can look there in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, our scene is being set up. And it tells us that Jesus isn't impressed with what's in mankind. It says in verse 23 of chapter 2, Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name and when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And immediately after that in chapter 3 verse 1, what does it say? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Jesus knows what's in us. And unless you think you're good enough to pass the test of God's holiness, John says, let me tell you the story of Nicodemus, one who has fallen short and must be born again. And so we should know what Nicodemus knew, that we've sinned, we've blown it. None of us gets a do-over. We've all made a mess of our lives in one way or another. And that's the problem. Sin is the problem. Jesus knows the heart. He knows the questions of the heart. He knows the sins of the heart. And up in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, it says that Jesus knew all people. He didn't need them to affirm him, he needed, they needed him to save them. Jesus knew that what's in us isn't good. And this is perhaps the most amazing thing in the story, is that Jesus knows the sin in you, and yet Jesus wants to save you. Jesus knows the sin, the dark secrets of the heart, and yet he still loves you. So this is why Jesus can't give Nicodemus or you and I a list of things to be right with God. Jesus can't say to Nicodemus or you, do these five things and you'll get into heaven. Because Jesus knows that even if we had a million lives to live, we would blow it every single time. If we are the problem, then we cannot be the solution. On our own, we can't make it back into the garden. 
we can't make it back into paradise. We are not permitted to see the kingdom of God. So the destination we long for has a problem that's insurmountable to us, but part three, the solution, it's not insurmountable to God. The amazing thing, as I say in this passage, is that it doesn't end in verse 3. It doesn't end with Jesus saying, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, here's what you need to do. Jesus says to Nicodemus, I am the solution. So Jesus explains to Nicodemus what the solution is. You must be born again. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John... This isn't the first time that the idea of being born of God is mentioned. Back in the introduction in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John begins this book, in fact, by saying this, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. To be a child of God, to be a part of God's kingdom, you must be born of God. Being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. You must be born of God. The solution to the problem of sin is not what you do, but about what God does in you. The promise that God would send someone who would take us back into paradise, goes all the way back to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 27, Ezekiel gives a promise from God. And Nicodemus would have known this. The promise is this, quote, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I, God says, will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness and all your idols. Moreover, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments." So the solution to our separation from God, to our sin, and to God's judgment is not anything we do, because our hearts are sinful. Ezekiel says a time is coming when God will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, and God will do this through his spirit, and that new heart will result in a changed life. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, starting in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And then Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Well, why not? Because this wasn't a new teaching. This was an ancient teaching, but Jesus is saying, now the time has come. God had said this before. Nicodemus, you should know this. A Pharisee, someone who teaches the Old Testament, should know 
that the way you get into the kingdom isn't by your works. You can't jump the gate. The way you get into the kingdom is by God making you new through the power of his spirit. So to be born again means to be cleansed from sin. It means to get a new heart, a new inner man, to love God and the things of God, to go from a rebel against God to a child of God, to loving God, to loving God's word, to loving God's reign in the world and in our lives. Jesus said it's the spirit which brings this all about. Just as you can't bring about your physical birth, you can't bring about your spiritual birth. You have a physical birth, and that gets you into this world. But if you want to enter into paradise in the world to come, Jesus says God's Spirit needs to enter into your soul and bring life where there is death. Which is why I began our worship service this morning by reading Ephesians chapter 2, which starts in verse 1 by saying, We were dead in our sins. But then in verse 4, it says, But God made us alive. Jesus says the Spirit brings it about. The Spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Well, you can imagine Nicodemus saying, Give me the Spirit. Give me the Spirit. I'll take that. As if some magic words were all he needed. Just snap his finger as if God were a genie in a bottle. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus reminds Nicodemus that Nicodemus doesn't control the spirit any more than Nicodemus controls the wind. Jesus is a master teacher and he appeals to something we all understand, the wind. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying the Spirit of God goes where God wants His Spirit to go. And we don't see the Spirit of God move. We can't see the Spirit of God here this morning, but He is. And we don't see the Spirit of God moving in our lives, but He is. Jesus said it's like the wind. You don't see the wind but you see the leaves rustling on the tree. You don't see the wind, but, you know, it blows your hair out of place in it. You go, oh, it's really gusting up. And so Jesus says, like the wind upon a tree or the water or the way we feel it in our hair, we know the presence of the Spirit by the effects of the Spirit. The Spirit of God brings salvation And so when John says that as many as received him, he's saying if you have received Jesus, if you have believed in Jesus, if you love his word, if you love his people, if you long to follow Jesus, that is the evidence of the presence of the Spirit on your life. Just as surely as the rustling of leaves is evidence of the presence of the wind upon the tree. Remember when Jesus says, as many as received him. So we cannot control the Spirit, but we can receive Jesus. To receive Jesus means to believe 
in Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus, you experience what Jesus calls being born again, being born of God. If you look in verse 16 of John chapter 3, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so your born-again experience happened when you decided by the, by the work of the Spirit that you wanted to stop rebelling against God and you wanted your life to fall under the authority of God through faith in Jesus. And when you received Jesus and f- began to follow him, that is the evidence Jesus says that exists to prove the Spirit of God in your life. So in conclusion, who doesn't want to enter paradise? Who doesn't want to enter eternal joy? Who doesn't want to leave behind guilt and suffering and shame and sickness and death? But Jesus is saying it's impossible on your own because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because we are unrighteous. But Jesus came to die for our sins so that by believing in him, we could be made new. We could be made into a child of God, not by our power, but by the power of God's spirit. John says, born not of the will of man, not by the effort of man, but by the will of God. God causes his spirit to come into us so that we can become his precious children. As I say, the amazing thing about all of this is that God desires to enter into you and enter into a relationship with you through the power of his spirit. God does not come into your life and say, here's a list of things, here's a broom and a mop, clean it up. Jesus says, I want a relationship with you and I'll pay the price on the cross and I'll do the work in you by my spirit and I will get you into the kingdom. So everyone in the room falls into two categories this morning. Those who are born again, and those who are not. Jesus doesn't say there's a third category. There's not a close to being born again category. There's not an almost born again. There's not a I once was born again, but I'm not now. There's just two types, sheeps, goats. Children of God, children of Satan, those born again, and those who need to be born again. And if you're not born again, then I pray that you would this morning hear the good news that God sees you, and he knows the secrets, but he loves you anyway. And Jesus, this perfect man, perfect God in the flesh, bore your sins on the cross and invites you into a relationship with him. But if you're here this morning and you are born again, and I pray that that's true of you, I hope that you hear this and are filled with joy and gratitude that whatever else is wrong in your life, Jesus has already solved your biggest problem. He's taken you from outside and he's brought you in by his blood so that you can be called a child of God so that he takes up residence in you by his spirit 
and he knows all the dark secrets. He knows where all the skeletons are, and yet he looks at you, and he loves you, and he says, you're going to make it in. Not just see it. I'm going to bring you in to my eternal paradise because you have received me. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, what good news. What good news that you love us. Jesus, while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, I wonder, do we have that mercy on other sinners in our lives? Do we judge them in ways we don't want to be judged? Do we respond harshly when you've responded graciously? Lord, I'm mindful of how I hear this good news, and yet I am often so ungracious to others. God, would you forgive me? Lord, would you bring about greater joy in my heart for what you've done for me in Christ? I pray for the person here this morning that's not born again. They know it. Right now, I pray in the quiet of their heart, they would just cry out to you, Jesus, I want you to save me. I know I've made a mess of it. I know if given a million lives, I couldn't do it right, not perfectly. And God, since you are holy, I ask you to forgive me by the blood of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Make me new. And I pray that right now would begin the rest of eternity for them and that they would leave with the joy as we would all have the joy of being born again. In Jesus' name, amen.